about half the room moves out when the kids leave. I love that. So I really appreciated uh, Barb sending out the announcements this week saying that Judd was preaching because I'm sure that about half of you wouldn't be here if you'd heard that Jim was going to be at the front. So thanks for showing up today. Um, the last time I stood in front of you was uh, actually the last day of, uh, uh, I think it was the last day, no, it was the 28th of December, but almost the end of the year last year. And uh, I diver- delivered a, a textual-based sermon on the Gospel of John. And if you were here, you remember we talked about how Jesus means everything to us as Lord God, King, and Friend. And uh, those textual-based sermons are, are kind of the norm around here. Um, and Judd has said and shared that, you know, every once in a while it's okay to deliver a topical sermon, but then you should quickly repent and get back to the text. And uh, so I just want to confess that I'm going to have to repent after today's sermon. Um, and I want to start off by giving you a $10 word, just see if you can throw this one out this week, hamartiology. And uh, that $10 word just means the study of sin. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Um, Judd read Romans 13, uh, verses 12 through 14, and it's this concept of laying aside the deeds of darkness and putting on the armor of light that we're going to be talking about today. And I will admit to you, I had some trepidation about the topic, and I even asked Judd if he thought it wise uh, before I committed to it. And a couple late days later, uh, Judd recommended a book called... Uh, Uh, Confronting Sins, uh, 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 Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate by a a guy named Jerry Bridges. So I I downloaded the book and listened to it during a couple of my long drives. And and, uh, fortunate for you, he does a much better job on the topic than than I do. And and so I'm just going to recommend the book to you and we can just call it a morning. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, I, d- I do want to let you know I might step on some toes today, and I hope you will hear me out because I want you to get the whole message. Um, and I'll start with this question, who are you? And I'd like you to think about how you'd answer that. And since I'm addressing people in a church service, uh, I would guess that most of you would likely include being a Christian as part of that answer. Uh, but the Bible describes that in very powerful terms. In Paul's addressed to the uh, church at Corinth, he paints a, a, a pretty messed up picture of a church. They're uh, pretty sinful. They've got a lot of uh, heresy going on. And, and yet, right from the outset, Paul calls them saints. Uh, let's read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those have been, who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And by the way, in case you were wondering, I am reading from the the blessed New American Standard Bible. So if you uh, were wondering why yours didn't match up exactly, that would be why. Um, Reality is, I don't think that we're anywhere near as messed up or permissive or sinful as that church at at Corinth. And so, uh, you know, the... I think that if they uh, earned that title of saints, then it stands to reason that true Christians everywhere get to wear that badge. Let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priest, 
priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Consider the weight of those labels. To be uh, royalty, you have to be related to the ruler. To be a, uh, uh, a, a um, chosen race, to be a race, you have to have a common bloodline. And to be a holy nation means you're collectively called out of the world for a special purpose. Paul, further in Galatians, this is chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a, if a son, then an heir through God. Wow. We're adopted children of the king of kings. So I, I read those verses just to remind us of how important we are to God. And in that station, we are constantly ambassadors for Jesus. God, through Jesus, redeemed us, and as such... We should let that light shine forth. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Yet, we live under a curse. And no, that's not a misspell. That acronym identifies the problem of sin in light of our station. You see, when, when we sin... Uh, we're displaying conduct unbecoming a redeemed saint. And so we're called to a higher standard. And the interesting thing is the godly and the ungodly expect more of those who call themselves Christians. And when we fail to meet that standard, the fallen world is ready and willing to pounce and point out our shortcomings. So this leads to why I feel some hesitancy about the message. I don't want to drive off the ditch, off the road into the ditch on, on either side. And uh, both ends of that spectrum are wrong and they're both dangerous. And so one ditch uh, would be legalism. If we focus too much on our works and what we do, then we can uh, become moralistic or, or fall into a works-based salva salvation. And obviously that's wrong. It's the work of Jesus on the cross that saved, past tense, and is saving, present tense, us. So um, the, the ditch on the other side is licentiousness. And this false doctrine reared its head very early in the church history. And it's sometimes, this is another $10 word, been uh, labeled as antinomianism. Anti means against, and nomos, Greek word or Latin word, means a law or rule of standard or rule of conduct it's a standard and so it's against that um, A.W. Tozer put it this way the creed of the antinomian is easily stated we are saved by faith alone works have no place in salvation conduct is works and is therefore of no importance what we do cannot matter as long as we believe rightly 
The divorce between creed and conduct is absolute and final. The question of sin is settled by the cross, conduct is outside the circle of faith, and cannot come between the believer and God. Such in brief is the teaching of the antinomian. Now, you might fall into that camp and even staunchly defend your freedom in Christ to behave as you please, but conditions do in fact exist on our salvation, and those are still not works. Well, how can that be? Well, here's, here's an analogy that was given to me early in my Christian walk, and I think it illustrates the difference. Let's say that someone gave me $10 million. That's a lot of money, and, and I can't spend that much, and it's more than I even want. So I call you up, and I say, all right, I want you to meet me at 10 o'clock Thursday morning at Alpine Bank, and I'm going to transfer a million dollars into your account. Now, the conditions to receive my gift are very clear. You have to be at the bank at the stated date and time. But you could in no way claim that by showing up, you earned the million dollars. So if you want to talk about that concept more off stage, I'd be happy to do that. Why does our belief and understanding that drives our behavior matter? So what difference does it make? Um, Jesus, speaking in John 15, Verse 10 said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So it sounds to me like Jesus thinks that the condition of keeping his commandments is pretty important. As people observe our lives, your life, it will either malign or glorify Jesus Christ. As people observe the church in action, it will either malign or glorify the body of Christ, Jesus' Jesus's church. We're supposed to be different, even weird by the world's standards. And we should expect that the world won't like us. John 15, verses 18 through 19, Jesus continues, and he says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So sometimes in the church we'll hear each other say, be of the world, but not, or be in the world, but not of the world. And so as that relates to why this is important, uh, everybody's favorite radio station is cool listening WIIFM. So what's in it for me? And I was talking to a friend of my wife, and she said, uh, so uh, what should people be expecting if they try to eliminate sin from their lives? And um, as I thought about that, I came up with two answers. First, the, I believe the Bible is inerrant, and I believe it's authoritative. I think it's the direct communication from our Creator King to us. So it stands to reason that if the Bible says that we should eliminate sins, we, we should want to do that. So secondly... If we attempt to eliminate sin, which more accurately we should just say reduce sin in our lives, our lives will just run better. We'll have fewer self-inflicted problems. The, the, the owner's manual, if you will, of the human life <laughs> says so. And I, I want to be clear, though. Um, I want to say what it will not do. So reducing sin in your life will not in any way help you earn your way into heaven. 
So I get that one down first. Secondly, reducing sin in your life will not mean that your lives are trouble-free. You're still going to have pain and suffering. You're still going to have trials and hardship. But you will have less of it. And the most important part is that when you have less sin in your life, it glorifies God. We need to start by calling out sin. We all have sin in our lives. Every single person in this room, let's not pretend like it's not there. We can confidently confront that sin, though, however, because we're armed with that knowledge that the sin is already forgiven. The atonement is done. Jesus is our propitiation. We need to put sinful ways behind us. Here are a couple verses that will illustrate this sufficiently. I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now our God is sovereign, and as our Father, if he's telling his children that the time of sinning for us is past, we should take him at his word. Don't be wondering what other sin out there you need to experience or indulge in so that you can sufficiently understand is the world. Titus 2, chapter 11, or Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people, and we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. Look at sin for the evil that it is. All sin is a cancer. And a cancer is a malignancy that can grow unchecked in the organism it inhabits until it kills that organism. And cancer can also metastasize and move to other body parts and grow there. And I'm using that language intentionally because Paul often talked about the church as a body and each of us being a body part. And so if we recognize sin as the deadly thing it is, we should want to eliminate it. Thomas Aquinas, he was a pretty smart guy, or might have been, but he got a number of concepts really wrong. And uh, one of them was that he had a list of mortal and venial sins. And using a more modern vernacular, we might call them hound dog sins and respectable sins. And... Uh, those first, that hound dog, those are the heinous, obvious, ugly, nasty, dreadful, dirty, overt, and gross sins. And even non-Christians will see those and generally agree, th those are wrong. Galatians uh, 5, cha uh, chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. It lists some of these out for us. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, ouch, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Kind of looks like... Uh, Paul got some of the uh, venial sins mixed up with the mortal sins. 
But these, these hound dog sins generally aren't a problem for us Christians. Um, many Christians will rail against the immorality that they see in the world. Uh, many Christians actively pray against the evil that we see around us, and, and rightly so. Uh, but what is increasingly rare is the recognition and repentance of the undiscussed, respectable sins we tolerate among each other right here in the church. And I'm talking about real sins, but sins that are often not called sins. That list might include gossip, pride, ungodliness, anxiety, frustration, discontentment, covetousness, jealousy, envy, selfishness, impatience, unthankfulness, self-centeredness, self-righteousness, crabbiness, meanness, and even moral, moral superiority. Now, there are verses uh, that Jerry Bridges uses to, to back up a, of this and a longer list of, of uh, things that we don't normally label as sin, but are condemned in the Bible. This, uh, that last one on there, moral superiority, that can appear, appear in, in various forms, and uh, it might stem from a belief that you hold a more accurate understanding of Scripture. And, and I'm pointing this one out because I'm, I'm guilty of this one and have been. Um, early in my walk, as I came to recognize apostasies in the church, and apostasy is just one of, the, one of those fun words that means falling away from the truth. So when I'd see that, I, I felt superior to those who held those false beliefs. And rather than using the scripture too lovingly and instruct them in the truth, I distanced myself from them. So that's an example. Another example might be uh, we, we see in Christendom, uh, well, our church has longer standing traditions than yours. And um, my wife and I were traveling in Boston uh, once, and we decided that one of the days we'd go uh, tour a, a bunch of historic churches, and including one Catholic church that was particularly beautiful. And up near the front of this very ornate building was this raised stone structure, which I guess is common in the Catholic Church, but this, this piece was made out of one piece of stone, if I remember right. And uh, so I asked our tour guide, I said, what, what, what is that called? And uh, she looked at me with such disdain, it was comical. And, and she, she told me the name, but I don't even remember it, uh, because she quickly brushed me off as someone clearly condemned to hell. And uh, so, you know, we've got to be careful about worshiping our, our, our traditions. Um, I could go on with the, the list of respectable sins, but I, I think you get the point. Each of those respectable sins is responsible for nailing Jesus to the cross, and that should sober us. And as we saw in the verse in Galatians, those hound dog sins and respectable sins are in the same category as far as God's concerned. So we need to step up our game. Some, some obvious things. You can drink, but don't be getting drunk. You can be on the computer, but don't be watching porn. You can be ambitious, but don't be envious. Don't lie. Don't steal anything. I mean, I, I could just read the Ten Commandments to you. Uh, and then I'd have to go to Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount and read how Jesus raised the bar on even those. You guys know this stuff. But I see the struggles going on. As, as an elder, I'm in a a somewhat unique position along with, with Judd, Brian, and, and hopefully Ben here in a month that, that you, you do see the struggles. And uh, 
I, I wanted to share from Scripture some tools that I believe can help all of us. Assess, adjust, and abide. Assess, where are you now? How are you doing? Adjust, you know, change your course. Um, consider an airplane, and, and Lauren can probably confirm or deny this, but it's been estimated that airplanes, when they're in the air, are off course about 90% of the time but they still reach their destination because they're constantly adjusting their course. And we can do the same. And abide. Remain in Christ and He in you. And so here are some of those tools. Separate. Separate yourself from evil influences. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Next, focus on what is good and right instead of what is evil and wrong. And for those of you who know me, you know this is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 8. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Quick question. What are you negative about in your world, in your life? Stop it. Think about what's right and good in your life. Start thinking about even in those situations where there's difficulty, you can find the good thing to focus on. Next, let's be around fellow believers. As Hebrews 10.25 instructs, we should gather around ourselves with fellow believers. Now, I'm not saying that we should be separatists and, and move away from the world or else how could we share the gospel? Keep yourself, though, in the influence and the encouragement of other Christians. And really, in this day and age, it's kind of a miracle to find other Bible-believing conservatives who agree on the interpretation and the application of Scripture, and yet here we are. And we're willing and ready to defend each other in the event of attack. This next one is regarding accountability. 
Hebrews 10.24, just one verse before. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Let's agree to encourage and accept accountability. And I, I do admit, this one's tough. No one likes to be told they're wrong, and we especially don't like having other people tell us how to act. But the fact is, we need it. Even the very best athletes have coaches. Now that coach cannot perform at the level of the athlete they're instructing, but they can see things that the athlete can do better. And so it is with us. You may be doing a lot of things really right in your Christian walk, but that fellow Christian can open your eyes and take off the blinders to those areas where we just fail to see error in our lives. I'll give you an example of, of uh, uh, accountability that didn't work. Uh, when I was uh, in junior high and high school, I had a real problem with my mouth. I, I had a problem with profanity. And I was a member of Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And so a friend of mine uh, and I agreed that that was unseemly for us to talk that way and, and we wanted to help each other to do better. And so uh, a few days later, as we were walking back from PE, he was up ahead of me and and was just turning the air a blue streak uh, with his language. And so I called him back and, and tried to uh, discreetly remind him to watch his language. And, and thanks for my well-meaning efforts, I received a verbal assault as a hypocrite, and he stormed off indignantly. Now, uh, this, this person and I are still very close friends, I, I will say, but I did learn at an early age that accountability needs to have some rules of engagement. I want to give you some of those. First of all, Pray without ceasing. Now, I know not everybody in here is in the practice and habit of praying every day and without ceasing. And so I want to give you a little acronym that is a great structure to hang your prayers off of. It's ACTS, ACTS. And, and so an immature Christian often will treat God as though he's a genie in a bottle. And when you hear their prayers, all they're doing all, every time is they're asking for what they want. And, and so this will hopefully help us to mature in that prayer life. A is for adoration. Express your adoration for God, who He is, His station, what He means. Secondly, confess. Confess the sins of your family, your church, and most importantly, your own. Uh, the T is thanksgiving. Thank God for all He has done. And then lastly, now we get to the supplication where we can ask Him for the things we need. And so as this relates to accountability, I would just suggest strongly that you go to God about your friends before you go to your friends about God. Next, let's give each other permission. Let's agree, discuss that agreement uh, before we start exercising the accountability. Make sure that the encouragement is done one-on-one, -on -one, no observers, and, and here's the one where, you know, sometimes it goes really off the rails. Don't be lifting up the sinner in, in your prayer circle. That's just gossip in the form of a prayer. Hold yourselves to no response or retort other than thank you for the input. And then prayerfully and seriously consider the suggestion that was made and let the Holy Spirit work on your heart. Be in the Word daily, again, heard it over and over but if you're not in the habit of being in opening that that bible and reading it every day and with these wonderful little devices it's so easy it's with us all the time 
Uh, there's an, so many of those great apps that you can download. Just five, ten minutes. If you're not in the habit, work up. You know, spend some time, but just make it part of your routine. Be encouraged. We have been freed from sin and its consequences. We have the power to defeat it. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. You are free. And use that freedom to serve others. And the one we are to love most is God. And that love should motivate us to want to glorify Him with our behavior. The second most important commandment, according to Jesus, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And if we have that love, we will put the needs of others equal to or even above our own. May God grant us the wisdom to see areas where we can improve. Love to, to lovingly point out where others can improve. Strength to act upon it. Courage to stay the course, even when it's difficult.